welcome to Resilience Unraveled. I'm your host, Dr. Russell Thackeray. This podcast is a result of my fascination with health issues, resilience, performance, mental health, accountability and critical thinking, along with many of the other obsessions I bump into in my life. I spend my time working with highly successful teams, organisations and people, and this podcast introduces their remarkable stories, as well as my synthesis of the key issues, tips and strategies to thrive in life. If you find this podcast useful, you can also find other information at qedod.com or russellthackeray.com. Stay tuned to the end for details of how to order a free ebook. Enjoy the podcast. So today I'm talking to someone from the world of um, athletics and um, well, I, I don't know how to describe Shay. I mean, he's going to tell you all about himself, but he's he's not our regular sort of guest. He's someone who into the extreme fitness side of things, but with an absolutely fascinating story, who's um, a speaker now as well, and has written a really interesting book, and uh, we'll get on to that in time as well. But hi, Shay. Hello. Hi. Where are you in the world? Nashville, Tennessee. Oh. Country music country fantastic we're going there we're, we in fact we should have been out there next week but we're going next year instead oh well make sure you call me when you're out here let don't don't tempt me <laughs> <laughs> and we were chatting just before we started and you're telling me that you're having british weather today that's always good to hear yes it's overcast and about 55 fahrenheit but as long as it's not raining i'll take it fantastic Shay, you've got a remarkable story. Why don't you take us back to the beginning and um, you know, tell the sort of UK audience all about yourself and how your journey started. Absolutely. So my journey actually started August 4th, 1982. I was eight years old, a normal boy by all standards. And my mom had asked me to go outside and warn my neighbors that they had an aggressive yellow jacket's nest in the ground that the previous day it swarmed my bicycle. Right. So I recruited my seven-year-old friend. I walked across the street to notify the neighbors, and they asked if we could show them where the yellow jacket's nest was. They then asked, could I help them get rid of it? And this was a 15-year-old girl. Her dad wasn't home, and we said, what do you need us to do? She was, all I need you to do is stand here. Don't do anything. Just make sure they don't leave the nest. Mm-hmm. So as we're standing there, she grabs a mat, she walks up to the hole in the ground where the yellow jackets are flying in and out of, throws the match down, and of course nothing happens. So we're standing there literally about 15 feet away watching the yellow jackets. Without saying a word, she grabs a cup of gasoline, pitches it between us, and hits the match. And it was at that point I realized when she had pitched the gasoline, it splashed me on the right side of my face and hit my buddy on the left side of his face. Within an instant, both of us were engulfed in flames. Luckily, I had the wherewithal to stop, drop, and roll. My friend stood there screaming. I was able to grab a water hose and put him out. And then from there, I spent the next three months in the hospital and have been in and out of hospitals the last 36 years and during over 35 surgeries. Wow. 
Unbelievable. And so, and so, how, so as a youngster, how did this affect you? You know, it's crazy. You know, at first, obviously, I was shocked. Um, one, uh, due to the severity of the burns, I've got scars over 65% of my body. Mm. My right ear had to be amputated. My right arm was physically melted to my side. I could not lift my arm over my head for three years. Wow. I had to learn how to write left-handed just to complete the third grade. My neck was stuck at a 60-degree angle. It took three years for me to be able to hold my head up straight. And due to all the orthotic braces I had to wear and the nature of the scars, everywhere I went, people would stop. They would stare. Some would even make comments. I could hear kids making comments to their parents. Ooh, mommy, look at him. Where's his ear? Ooh, gross. Mm. And honestly, there's nothing that can prepare you for this kind of trauma, especially as a kid. And I was fortunate enough at the time, Wes Craven released his movie, Nightmare on Elm Street. I don't know if you remember the the main character, Freddy Krueger. Yeah. And when I was returning back to school, I would hear kids in the hallway say, hey, Freddie. And honestly, when I looked in the mirror, that's what I saw. I mean, it was so bad that I would not even look at the right side of my face in the mirror because I saw a horrible monster staring back at me. Right. And I cried myself to sleep for months. And what I realized was, no amount of crying, praying, or begging my parents to take it away was going to fix it. Right. I ultimately had to just embrace it. This was my new reality. These scars I was going to have to live with for the rest of my life. And it was nothing that I need to be ashamed about. It wasn't a result of something I did wrong. It was simply an accident. So, so, so that way of thinking, where did that come from? Is that something your parents gave you or... Because that's quite a mature perspective at that sort of age. Some of it, yes, but I think a lot of it is just faith. You know, we're uh, a big Christian family and just always kind of believe good things come to those who have faith and do the right thing. But some of it, I think, was just naturally. You know, I, I looked at the alternative, which was feeling sorry for myself and playing the victim card. Yeah. And doing that... I realized was not getting me anywhere. And when I would go back to the hospital for treatment, you would see these other kids that had it far worse than I did mm. running around acting like nothing was wrong. Mm. And it's just one of those things you're like, why am I feeling sorry for myself when these kids over here have no fingers, no nose, you know, scars on 85% of their body seem to be fine with it. And I think it, it was a good reinforcement to be surrounded by people that really had it much worse, but were still carrying on despite that. Yeah. So you took inspiration from from other people getting on with things. <clears throat> I did. You know, one of the things I started doing uh, as part of my healing process was reading books on inspiration, watching movies on inspiration, people overcoming adversity. I decided at an early age, I did not want to be surrounded by negativity. Right. I did not want to watch movies where people were dying from 
cancer or other diseases. And what I really wanted to do was reinforce in my brain that I could overcome this, nice. that other people have done it. And the key is not to give up when things go wrong, because one of the things we do know is things will ultimately go back. Yes. It's not if, it's when. And you're going to have a choice. It's, am I going to quit and play the victim card? Or am I going to be a survivor and do whatever it takes to overcome it? And, and that's interesting, isn't it? Because there's a lot of talk these days about social media and kids and Instagram and such like, um, and people being compared and looking at people and, you know, you know, giving likes and nasty comments to each other on social media. But obviously you were getting those sorts of horrible comments. You were getting those sort of threatening looks and such like. So... So how what did you what what did you do that could help somebody in that situation on social media today, if that makes sense? Yeah, it, it does. You know, that's why I, I wouldn't say I laugh, but when people are talking about bullying like it's something new, bullying and making fun of people for their differences has existed since the beginning of time. Agreed. This is not something new, and the more we do to shield ourselves or protect our kids from it, the worse we're making it. I didn't have anybody bailing me out. You know, I had to toughen up. I had to look at myself and say, look, nobody's going to do this for you. If you want to get better, it's up to you. Mm. And for me, sports was a big healer for me because I came to grips that these scars aren't going away. No. I'm going to have these for the rest of my life. But... I can become a great athlete again. I truly believed it. Even though the doctors told me when I first got burned, I'd never be competitive in sports again. Right. I truly believed one day I could become a great athlete again. So I committed myself wholeheartedly into becoming an athlete. Now that's interesting because <clears throat> we hear a lot in the UK about Americans and their visions and dreams and hopes and all you have to do is is wanted enough, but what you've already started to say, it's not just about wanting it, you've got to do the work. You've got to commit to the, to the, um, to the graft of it. You do. You know, but I mean, part of it starts from the vision that, hey, I can do it. Yeah. Then you start doing it, then you believe, hey, I can do it. This yeah. is not just crazy. But, you know, one of the things I guess I was fortunate that I knew this wouldn't happen overnight. I mean, it took me three years to lift my arm over my head. And I, just through the whole burn recovery, saw the benefit of small gains. Yeah. You know, I didn't see monumental gains. I mean, it was stuff that maybe over a week I could lift my arm half an inch higher. Yeah. And those were big wins for me. And so I learned early on that it was going to be painful. But pain, with pain comes growth, yeah. and the growth was necessary for me to achieve my goals. But I really believe that if I was a good athlete, that it would give people reason to stare at me besides just the scars. So you're almost use, using the pain as um, evidence that things are getting better, whereas a lot of people see pain as a sign that they shouldn't do anything. You were using it as a, as a um, this is a sign that things are working. Yeah, for me, pain's always been a reinforcement. Right. And I've always subscribed to the motto, no pain, no gain. Yeah. 
And for me, it's allowed me to excel in sports that pain is a criteria. Uh, I got into wrestling, uh, had a very successful high school career, and will be inducted into their Hall of Fame here in two weeks. Was a three-time boxing champion in college and, and got into Ironman racing the last 10 years and have been ranked the top 1% in the world the past four years. And none of this was because I was a great athlete, but it's all because I was a great competitor. I always felt I could endure more pain longer. Right. In these sports, it wasn't about pure athleticism. It's all about who had the grit, who had the perseverance to keep pushing when everything in your mind and your body said quit. And those are sports that I always felt like I gravitated towards and did well in. So, to, so just talk to me for one second about Ironman, because it's not something I'm, I know about it, I've heard about it, I know it's an impressive thing, but tell me what's involved in Ironman. So an Ironman is a triathlon. Mm -hmm. It is a 2.4-mile swim, a 112-mile bike, followed by a 26.2-mile marathon, wow. all within 17 hours. Wow. And... You know, my journey into Ironman was kind of one of those, like so many, it found me. It wasn't something that I sought out. I lost a mentor uh, in 2008 to pancreatic cancer. Right. And he was one of the original Ironmen from 1978, Henry Forrest. Yes. And right before he died, a group of us said, Henry, we're going to do the next big triathlon. We don't care the distance. We're going to do it in your honor. Mm. And I didn't own a bike. I had never swam. I haven't ran more than five miles ever in my life. Hadn't even ran since high school. Mm. I was definitely not in shape to be competing in an Ironman. Well, five months later, I did a half Ironman. That was the first big race that was available to race. And after crossing the finish line, I said, you know, that wasn't that bad. Right. Imagine if I knew what I was doing, because I had bought a bike off Craigslist for $500, was teaching myself how to swim, no plan, just went out trained based on what I thought needed to be done. Yeah. So the next week, I signed up for the Ironman, did it five months later, same course, twice, yeah. and was able to finish in the top 15%. And then I said, hmm, maybe I'm on to something. So I started training harder, getting smarter about it, and then my next Ironman race, I finished second in my age group. Yeah. And so it's just like everything else, when you find out you're good at something, you keep doing it. Yes. Right? <laughs> and I've been hooked ever since. And one of the things you realize about Ironman is almost everybody in the sport has a story. Hmm. There's something about the amount of physical and mental endurance that's required to do one that attracts people and generally it's because something you're going through in your life whether it's overcoming addiction you've lost a job maybe you were divorced there's some life-altering situation going on and iron man has helped people transition through that it's interesting so it's almost as if I suppose it's such a it's such a tough thing, and it's, it is actually proof to yourself 
that you're able to be the person you want to be in that setting. Is that, is that what it is? It absolutely is because, you know, just logically, when you tell people swimming 2.4 miles, bike 112 and run a marathon, you're like, that's crazy. Yeah. How can you possibly do that? Yeah. And then once you start breaking it down to what's it take to be able to do that, and then you map it out through a 30-week program, and when you accomplish it, you start looking at life in general completely different. You say, what else in life have I not done because I thought it was too hard, too big, I couldn't wrap my head around, how do I get started? Yes. And like so many things in life, if you just start, you can do it. You know, I tell people, if you were to tell me 15 years ago how difficult it would be to raise children, I wouldn't do it, you yeah. know? Yes. But once you start doing it, and you know, I've got five kids now under 13, you're like, hey, this isn't that bad. But it's like everything else. Sometimes you just got to get it, get in it, start it. Yeah. Don't overthink it. Just start moving. It's interesting, isn't it, when you when you see entrepreneurs, people talking about business or people criticizing other people. They're the people that sit on the side lines and throw rocks, aren't they? People who are getting on and doing it. And, yeah. Um, and it is. And it's it's fascinating this difference between the watchers and the doers in life. It's funny because I'm a believer, the watchers, it's not because they didn't want to do something, but they were scared. Maybe it's scared of failure. Yeah. And so what they want to do is project their fears onto you. So when you start telling them, here's what I'm going to do, naturally they say, well, you can't do that. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things I learned early as a kid, it's you block those people out. You one, I ignore them. Two, anytime they start saying negative, you say, "Look, that's not true. Let me give you five ways that I can do it." Yeah. Watch me. And my whole life has been about proving people wrong. I tell people, if you want to get me fired up, tell me there's something I can't do, and I promise you, I'm going to commit every waking moment yeah. trying to prove you wrong. Now that's interesting because. You're not saying ignore these people. You're using the, the input from those people as energy almost. Oh, they, they fuel me. Like when I do my long workouts, I think about all the people in my life that told me I couldn't do something. Right. That's interesting. Hmm. But on that same note, Russell, I also believe it's key to surround yourself with people that are like-minded. Yes. Positive people as well. Yeah. Yes. You know, you can only commit so much energy to blocking out negative people. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like Einstein says, for every solution, they've got a problem. Yeah, that's right. And so I really go to great lengths to surround myself with positive people, people that are doers, entrepreneurs, achievers. And what you learn is by just hanging out with them. Mm. You start subtly picking up on the mindset of what it takes to do amazing things. And, and actually, your advice to anybody to do anything is just to start. Just do it. Just start, yeah. Just take the first yeah. step. I mean, I got talked into it. I wouldn't say talked into it, but a friend of mine said, Shay, come do this race with us. We're going to do a 45-mile run through the Grand Canyons this summer. 
It'll be over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Hmm. It'll be miserable. Come join us. Yes. So five minutes later, I said, I'm in. Yeah. And then, of course, I'm trying to explain to my wife. She goes, why would you do that? I said, because he asked me to. Hmm. How could I not do it? And then these other people are going to do it with us. Imagine the bonding that's going to go on as a result of all of us suffering and finding out what we're capable of doing together. Yeah. And I think that's the thing in life is so many people, when they find out there's suffering or pain involved, they run from it. Yeah. Whereas if you ran to it and said, look, when I get through this, because I know I will, it's not going to kill me. When I get through this, Imagine how amazing I'm going to be. Imagine what else in life I can now overcome as a result of this experience. Yes. And, you know, Russell, for me, it's, it's fun. Like when you always ask people, what's one of the most memorable experiences in your life? It's never something easy. It's never, hey, we went to the park and watched the sunset. It's always something that was so hard. Hey, we were barely making ends meet. I didn't know how I'd pay rent. I didn't know if I could afford groceries. I was working two jobs. So if we all agree those are some of the most memorable experiences in our life, why do we run away from them every time we're presented with one? Hmm. It's fear, isn't it? I mean, that's that's interesting, isn't it? Because you talked about fear. And what you're saying is your fear uses energy, again, as fuel, whereas other people use that fear as energy to do nothing. Yeah. So it's there's somehow you've... And, and there's a must be a reinforcing success loop here that says, well, you've done it, so you know you can. And yeah. now you know you can. You get the fear, so you can do it, and you know you can. But it, but it's, but it's, it's that first time, isn't it? How do you persuade someone the first time to take that risk, to throw themselves in it, to take that first step? I believe it's truly just committing to doing it and having. If you've got a life partner, say, look, hold me accountable. Mm. When I'm tempted to quit, because you will be, you know, it's going to be hard. That's the whole intent. Yeah. Keep me accountable. Tell everybody you know, hey, I'm doing this. When you make it so publicly known, you realize quitting is not an option because the, the alternative is far worse. Yeah. But, you know, like when I do my Ironman, when I signed up for these races, I subject myself, myself to training where I will suffer in my training. Yes. So the pain that I experience in a race, I've already experienced it in practice. It's not something new. You know, I've went out on the hottest day of record in Nashville, Tennessee. I layered up in sweat clothes and went and did an eight-mile run in it just to convince myself I can do anything. Yeah. I can suffer no matter what the conditions. You know, a smart person will say, well, that's pretty stupid. You could have gotten overheated, you know, whatever. Um, and yet, I mean, that's a true risk. But I'm in tune with my body. I know when I'm getting to that level. Yeah. But so much of what we go through, it's all mental. It's not a physical pain. It's a mental pain. Mm. And we don't realize the brain was designed to protect us. But sometimes it overprotects us. And yeah. so... We have to put ourselves in situations to allow the brain to do what it truly does. Mm -hmm. And that is adapt and overcome. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of my favorite stories of all time, you probably know this story, but the story of Ernest Shackleton. Yeah. 
I mean, the greatest adventurer in the history of the world, he and his crew were stuck in Antarctica for two years, you know, back in, well, I think, 1916. Yeah. And you read about how he got his men to survive and endure two years in Antarctica and get every man home alive. Yeah. It was all about keeping the mind occupied. Do not entertain any thoughts of, we're going to die why are we even fighting? It's all about focused on surviving. Yeah. Yes, what you focus on matters. I think that's what you're saying, isn't it? And It is. And if you're listening to other people and letting other people disturb you, then you're not focused on anything. You're just, you, because you're not focused on something, you must be open to anything negative appearing. Well, one of the things I'm a firm believer in is, are you familiar with RAS, reticular activating system? I am. So I truly believe, you know, the brain's got this built-in filter. So it's programmed to bring you more of what you want as opposed to what you don't want. Yeah. So if I'm entertaining negative thoughts, the brain thinks, well, Shane must like negative things. Let me show him all the negative things in his daily life yeah. and reinforce that habit. But on the inverse, if... Shay's focused on survival, success, making it, overcoming adversity. My brain is going to look for daily occurrences to reinforce that belief. And it's amazing how differently I see the world now that I truly believe that. Yeah. Like I truly believe we are designed to adapt and persevere. Yeah. Well, I mean, the whole human race is actually evidence of that. It's not, yeah, you know, it's a thing, isn't it? It's not. It's not just a, a random belief. It's a, it's a fundamental part of who, what makes us human in a way, isn't it? It is, and it's funny. You know, we talked about just the bullying, and you know how we go out of our way to shield kids and stuff from that now. But I say this, and I really mean it. It's as a human race, we've become soft in the past hundred years. Yeah. If you look at what our ancestors did, I mean, those were true men and women. I mean, those were pioneers. The stuff that they did and they didn't complain. They just did it because that's all they knew. Mm. All they knew was hard work. You see, Shay, I find that interesting actually. I'm just musing on what you're saying there. And I wonder if I wonder if actually the definition of work's just changed. I wonder if actually we are soft, but soft against a standard a hundred years ago. But there's actually some youngsters who are very, very tough, but in a different world. You know, in the world of virtual reality, or coding, or technology, and and they do have the hard work ethic. They do work, but they work in a sort of different, in a different way, in a different context. Do you know what I mean? I do. I think that argument is valid. It's you know, work used to be defined by manual labor intensity. Yeah. Now, I mean, it's true that the brain can be fatigued just as much from thinking as it can from physical work. Yes. And so that's why I said, you know, there's you can subject yourself to mental torture as much as you can physical. Like the Iron Man, I tell people the physical piece is easy. Yeah. I can train for that all day long. It's the mental side. When you go out and race for me, it's typically 10 to 11 hours to do an Ironman. There's a lot of stuff that's going through your mouth, your brain yeah. <laughs> during that race. It says, what are you doing? This is stupid. Why are you not home watching TV? Why are you not at the pub? 
<laughs> no, I, I've never done an Ironman, but I'm, and I'm assuming you could train the physical side, but it's actually quite hard to train the mental side because you can only really experience the true mental picture when you're in the middle of the, you know, the 40th mile of the race. It, you, can't, you can't train for that, can you? So you, I suppose you only find out, you can only deploy the strategies when it really hits you then. That's who you find out where you really are, I suppose, is that, is that maybe that's what I mean. It is, you know, like I believe like these great natural athletes, if it's a two hour event, there's, it's hard for me to have a mental edge over them. My mental acuity will not trump their physical dominance in a two hour race. But if we're getting into a 10 hour event, physically they could still compete, but maybe mentally at hour seven or eight, they check out and they're done. And so one of the things people don't realize in an Ironman race, you can't use headphones, you know, on this 112 mile bike, you got to be at least 21 feet apart from the next rider. Wow. So you can't talk to my, so when you're out there racing 10 hours, 11 hours or longer, it's truly you and your thoughts. You have nothing to distract you from the pain. Yeah. And so the way I used to prepare for it is every Saturday, I would do a seven hour workout with no headphones. Right. I would do a six hour bike ride by myself, nobody talked to, no headphones, and then I would do a one hour run right after that. Mm. And it was a great prep for me going into a race knowing I was doing seven hour training exercises every week, you know, with no distraction. And it's tortuous. And, and this is fascinating. What I find interesting about this is that there are a lot of sportsmen who, who um, have your story, but you've had a, a commercial life as well. You've worked in the professional corporate world as well. And I just wonder how you've taken some of those things into that corporate life as well. I truly believe sports is a great predictor for success in the business world. Right. You know, it's a lot of the same regimen. It's time management. Uh, it's goal setting. Um, it's delivering what you said is your goal, accountability. And so for me to be competitive in Ironman, you know, it forces me to get up at four o'clock. I got to knock out my workout before seven so I can get to the office and do my job. Yeah. But because of competing, it forces me to make smart decisions that some people don't make after hours. Like I know. I can't sit out and have a few drinks with everybody. I might could have a beer or a glass of wine, but I got to go to bed so I can get up at four o'clock the next morning to exercise. Yeah. And I know what my goals are and those goals prepare me for business. When I'm in peak training mode, I'm in peak mode at work. I'm executing on all cylinders. But I also believe, Russell, it helps, you know, in the industry I'm in, when I go to conferences and people are just networking, just drinking all night, enjoying time away from home, and they see that I'm focused on maintaining fitness as opposed to debauchery, it resonates. You know, it shows a man, hey, this guy's driven, he's focused, you know, he's not just out trying to have a good time. He's got objectives in life, and he knows where he wants to go. Yeah. Yeah, well, you're sort of living living your story, really, aren't you? I believe so. But, you know, the, the thing I struggle with is 
how do you get people that don't know what it feels like to wonder if you'll ever walk again? Mm. How do you get them to appreciate just the fact that you can walk without the aid of another person is an accomplishment? Or the fact that you can button your own shirt after three years yeah. is an accomplishment. And Because when you've been on that side of the bed, you realize you don't ever want to go back. And to waste a minute of your life, you feel like you're letting yourself down. Yeah. Before every surgery, you'll find me exercising in my hospital room because I truly believe if I wake up and don't have the use of the limbs that I had before I had the surgery, I can live with it because I made the most of every minute. Yeah. And I think so many people, sadly, it takes a serious illness, loss of a loved one, or a major tragedy to wake them up. And so you wish you could get that sense of urgency in them so that they would appreciate all the gifts that they have. Yeah, that's, that's, that's fascinating. You're so right. And I mean, not only the corporate life, the sports life, you've now turned your hand to writing as well. So you've, uh, you've done what many people find difficult. You've written the book. You've taken the first step. You've, <laughs> you've, many people find writing a book very difficult, but you've obviously got through the block and the difficulty and the the writer's cramp and everything, and you've produced this thing. So congratulations, because not everybody does that, do they? Huh? So tell me about the book. What the fire ignited? Tell me a little bit about it. So the book talks about my journey from getting burned at eight to racing Iron Man to raising a family of five, being married 15 years, you know, and the success that's brought me in the corporate world. But it's trying to get people to embrace their struggles as opportunities in disguise. And so I just kind of walked them through everything that I went through because it's so easy for people to see where you are in life today yeah. and feel like it's always been that way. They don't know the years of struggle, the years that everywhere I went, people would laugh at me, point at me, make fun of me. Mm. And there was no assurances life would get better for me. Mm. Nobody ever said, hey, Shay, if you keep doing this, you're going to be a great wrestler or eventually a competitive Ironman. But I did it because I knew the alternative of doing nothing was not something I could live with. Mm -hmm. And so the goal of the book was twofold. One, it was to leave a legacy for my kids to say, hey, here's the life that your dad lived. This is what he believes in. Yeah. But also it's to help everybody else that is struggling because I know – Everybody struggles, whether it's emotional, physical, spiritual, financial. We all face some kind of obstacle. Yeah. But it's to give them the hope and the courage. You can do it, but you just got to take a step forward, push through it. And no matter how insurmountable the odds may be, if you always commit to just running one more mile, you can do anything because that's what we believe in Ironman. Like, I never tell myself, I'm going to go run a marathon. Yeah. I tell myself, I'm going to run one mile 26 times. Yeah, good idea. And at the end of each mile, I'm going to run one more mile. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's fascinating. Shay, I could talk to you all day, but I want to be respectful of your time. If someone wants to get hold of your book, how would they do that? So you can find the book, What the Fire Ignited, on Amazon. Um, you can also go to my website, whatthefireignited.com or shayescu.com. I also have the book on Audible version as well. 
and Kindle. And then, you know, if they have an interest in securing a speaker, I do keynote speeches around the world and would love to share my story in person. Fascinating. Shay, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. And I think, I mean, you almost embody resilience and many of the messages that we talk about. And I think you brought you know, some really big learnings there around taking the first step, running. I mean, I like that. I love that analogy of the marathon, you know, one one mile at a time. I think that's I think that's such a clever way of doing it. The first step idea, I love that. Imagine what else you can do if you can achieve that. You learn from adversity as much as you learn from your successes. I mean, that's just, all of that is the, the sort of keystone of resilience. I really like that. Thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. My pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity to share my message. And uh, thank you so much. Take care. We hope you found today's podcast useful. If you did, why not subscribe and listen to our other podcasts? We would love it if you could leave us a review. To access our resilience coaching, contact us at info at qedod.com. And finally, if you'd like to download our free resilience ebook, go to qedod.com slash free ebook. Thanks for listening.